Hello, Cornellians. Thanks for joining us on the Fresh from the Hill podcast. I'm your guest host, Andrew Brady, class of 2010, and I'm excited to be here today with Michael Annunziata, a two-time Cornellian, class of 2011 and MBA class of 2017. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. So you must have enjoyed your time on the Hill if you decided to come back, but let's let's go back to your first go-around if you can put yourself back in, in those shoes. Um, you were an ILR major, which is a you know, pretty uh, niche, you know, type of type of major. Take us back. How did you hear about ILR and what kind of what kind of career path were you aiming for? Uh, it's it's funny. Um, I was talking about this with some some friends over the weekend, some some Cornell friends over the weekend, and I actually answered this exact question, which was, you know, how did you end up at ILR uh, as a 17 year old high school kid pursuing some relatively obscure major? Um, at Cornell, and uh, you know, honestly, it was—I almost hate even to say it—but there was a pamphlet, a brochure sent sent to my house, and it was asked questions of, you know, are you the peacemaker among friends? Do you like history? Do you like? Um, are you outgoing? Do you uh, like like to talk to people? And and um, all those things uh, really resonated with me to the point where I said. Yes, yes, yes. Went down the list, and I said, you know, um, I should, I should give this a shot, and and I should share. You know, my cousin actually had graduated years before from ILR, but I hadn't actually put that together at the at the time, and uh, you know, spoke to her about it as well, and she had very, very fun things to say, and and um, so I applied uh, and ended up being accepted, and honestly, it was such a unique educational experience to to learn those different things that I didn't know a lot about. Um, but more importantly, uh, the people who I got to spend time with, because the, if you've spent any time with ILREs and they are a very unique, uh, bunch in terms of, you know, social aptitude and just the, the focus on, on people and relationships, because that is what drives a lot of the professions that, that those students go on to, to pursue. Yeah. So was there, was there one that you had in mind? I know some use it as kind of like a pre-law track. Some try to go into human resource type things. What, what was your thought? Yeah. So uh, I actually wanted to do labor relations and sports and, and to work in sports. Uh, and, and funny enough, uh, through some ILR alums, I was able to network to an internship in the HR and recruiting department at Major League Baseball for the commissioner's office one summer. Uh, so kind of Cornell, ILR specifically, the alumni groups, my networking really unlocked and, and created that opportunity for me, uh, which followed one of my other dreams in addition to sports, which was working for, for Disney. Uh, so I did a I did a credit internship through the ILR program and, and um, you know, Bridget Beachler's listening. I'll give her a little bit of a shout out because she was my credit internship manager, kind of helping place and, and create that opportunity. I got to spend six months working in Orlando um, in the labor relations group, uh, doing a variety of things, uh, made a couple of good friends from down in that experience. Uh, so really had an opportunity to kind of do my two dreams while in college, you know, working for Disney and, and working in sports, obviously went a different direction. Um, but, uh, you know, things happen sometimes. Life is funny, but, but Cornell unlocked that opportunity for me, both of those. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of getting some of those experiences. Now, what about your time on campus? Do you have any kind of memories, whether it's a class or a professor or, or anything that really sticks out to you? Oh, yeah, I, I mean, a lot. Would it be cliche if I said the wines class, obviously? Hey. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, it's funny that, that that class was a ton of really great learning for me. Um, one of my bigger eye-opening 
classes was labor history. Um, when you really, you get to the Hill and your first intro class is a stack of 15, 300 page novels and you have, you know, 18 weeks to read them all um, to learn about labor history in the early 1900s. So, uh, you know, rest in peace, uh, Professor Cleet Daniel, I will never forget him and like that overwhelming experience. Um, but it, the thing that was kind of constant within my Cornell classes is really learning how to learn. And that was such a different experience for me at a different level, motivated by my peers to do better. Um, that put you in an environment that I think was really unique uh, to Cornell and obviously to, to ILR. And I took some courses in the hotel school. I took, you know, accounting in the hotel school, which was a really great class. I took finance in the hotel school, which was a nice way to kind of augment the ILR education. Um, and then some other unique ILR classes. I took collective bargaining in sports. I took just generic collective bargaining um, with, who at the time was Dean Katz, uh, who was just a fantastic um, class for me and learned a ton. Nice. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Learning how to learn and, and learning to, to love to learn uh, just just always stays with you and, and definitely a, a memorable part of the experience. So hopefully, uh, you know, you, you can maybe take some of that into into all of the things that you do after you leave campus. And so after, you, you know, you graduate, what was what was the, the career track from that point? Yeah, sure. So I worked, uh, you know, there's an opportunity posted through on-campus, well, off-campus recruiting technically, but through the, the portal for jobs at a, a large family office down in New York City. Uh, kind of like a lot of ILREs, I think you kind of straddle this, do I want to do business? Do I want to do law? Do I want to do HR? And there's a group of us that kind of figure it out. Um, and I found an opportunity that allowed me to do a little bit of both. So I was working in a legal and compliance group at a family office, working with hedge fund trading, working with legal documents, working with just basic research functions. Did that for about three years. I got a lot of exposure to private investing, to public investing, to um, managing and tax structuring, all sorts of things that I didn't really know a ton about, but I was really interested in. Um, but most importantly, I was surrounded by good people that were willing to teach me and, and help take me under their wing and give me an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, and that kind of set me up for the next opportunity, gave me a little bit of that clarity around what I wanted to do, kind of spending more time uh, focusing on the investing side and, and supporting other either entrepreneurs or, or companies and what it may be from an investment standpoint. Um, always bringing that kind of ILR perspective of the world of work and the people perspective to how you think about that kind of stuff. So ironically, I had an opportunity to come back to Ithaca uh, to work for the University Endowment. So I spent uh, the two and a half-ish, three years after that opportunity at the family office in New York uh, doing investments for, for the University Endowment uh, before going to business school at, at Johnson. Nice. Yeah, well, we're, we're both in Rochester right now, but uh, I always say if I had a second place that I would that I would love to live, it would definitely be Ithaca. So you've had you've had the opportunity to spend a little yeah. bit more time there than I have. But, you know, tell us where along this journey was it back to that wine class or was there something else? Because right now you're you're the, the co-founder and CEO of, of Farther Farms. Where did this interest in kind of the food system? Where did that come to play? Yeah. So, you know, as far as food goes specifically, um, I always well, first off. I'm a, I'm an Italian boy, so I do like I do like food. I, I'm not gonna not gonna hold that back. Um, you know, I always grew up, you know, helping mom cook and, and doing those kinds of things. So I always had an affinity for for food and and really what it represents and bringing people together. 
uh, creating opportunities for engagement and to build relationships. And a lot of it is built around kind of that, that the meal or that food. Um, so that's a personal piece of it. And when you combine, you know, entrepreneurship and food is, is very, very, it's a robust field. There's a lot of people that do it. And um, one of the things we talk about at Farther Farms a lot is, you know, what's your superpower? What do you do better than everybody else? Um, and really working on being able to articulate that. And I think it's a kind of a journey of self-discovery for a lot of people to have to articulate that. And through the different experiences I had before Cornell, at Cornell, working in New York, going back to Cornell, in business school, um, a lot of it came back to why I went to ILR, which was my ability to kind of connect with people and to build relationships. And entrepreneurship at its fundamental core is kind of about that. It's about solving problems and building relationships. So when I answer that question, it's that's what I do really, really, really well. And kind of landing, being able to, you know, food, okay, is one form that you can use to pursue entrepreneurship and marrying that with the skill set that you have to be in a leadership role as an entrepreneur, uh, it was a really a nice fit. And, and, and for me, ultimately, too, it was a bit organic and no pun intended uh, in uh, <laughs> partnering with my, my partner who had a similar kind of perspective, uh, Vipul, who was in the ag school doing his master's when we met uh, when I was in business school. And kind of one thing led to another. And we're really uh, fortunate to be building something really exciting from a, from a product standpoint and a technology standpoint but even more so from a people standpoint and a culture standpoint and building kind of a sustainable organization uh, that shares the common mission and, and vision and values of, of really making it about the people first and, and everything else will kind of follow. Well, you're definitely speaking my language in terms of the, the culture, the, the, the mission that you have. You know, the, those, those that have listened to some of these shows will, will know my passion for conscious capitalism. And I know that that's definitely something that more people are becoming more aware of in terms of more people want to work for those types of companies where they, where they have a culture where they feel cared for. Uh, more and more often, people are trying to align their, their investments or, or vote with their wallet in terms of aligning those with their values. And so I'd be curious from your perspective, because you're, you're, you're leading a company now, uh, and, and many people, whether or not they're leading their own company, many young alumni that are listening are probably going to be in that, in that mind or, or in that part of their career where, where they're starting to take on a leadership role. So is there anything that you've, you've learned recently or, or that you're learning right now of kind of advice that you'd pass along to those young alumni that are, that are new to leadership roles? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a ton of the, the, maybe the biggest lesson is as a leader, I'm always learning and I'm always questioning and I'm always trying to get more information as best I can. Um, and being a leader is more about, setting an example and holding people accountable and and understanding and listening than it is about dictating and telling people what to do um, and really being in tune with the people that you're managing uh, and, and setting that example is going to set you up really really well uh, for success and obviously that starts with um, a level of humility that you need to demonstrate in being a leader a level of self-awareness uh, keep coming back to this like a broken record, but the ability to build relationships and build trust. I think without trust, it's very hard to be a good leader. Um, so those kind of those things are, are, are really in the abstract, uh, really big focuses for me and I think should be for any young leader. And what I would also say is you know, find a mentor. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate to have uh, a number of really great mentors, both from my, my time at the family office, my time at Cornell, both you know, working at the endowment and some of the, some of the great folks there, 
uh, and then also some folks in the business school uh, that have been great supporters of me and my my development too. Um, all of that said, you know, you get those things because you also put in hard work. You know, I think making sure that the focus is on as you become a leader, uh, you you really work harder uh, as you go up. And, and the problems get more complex and more challenging and more dynamic. Uh, so you need to always be learning, always be growing and always be thinking, how can I make myself better so you can perform well in the role that, that you're assigned as you kind of look to take the next steps in your career. Yeah, that's perfect. And, and I think in, in my experience too, and, and, and maybe this will resonate a little bit, but you know, the higher up you go in the organization, the less you're actually doing the actual work, whether it's, you know, twisting the nuts and bolts or, or sitting in front of the computer and the more you're getting work done through other people. So yeah, that, yeah. that empathy, that relationship building becomes even more important as you're, as you're climbing. And so, uh, you know, I, I definitely can appreciate that. And then, you know, finding those mentors. Uh, my dad always used to tell me to create your own personal board of directors, you know, different people that maybe some in your industry, maybe some in totally different areas, but, but really kind of a, a diversity of strengths and styles and backgrounds and, and different people that can give you different perspectives as you're on your own journey. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. So now I do want to jump kind of into what Farther Farms, you know, what, what do you actually do? Was, was this, uh, you know, this is a, a technology type of type of company. Um, tell us a little bit about where, where the idea came from. Yeah, sure. So, so <laughs> I can't take credit for for this technology. Obviously, I'm uh, as an MBA and, and ILRA, but uh, in terms of developing the, the core technology, but my, my co-founder uh, developed it uh, leading up to and then during his master's studies at in Cal in Cornell in the Ag School at Cornell. Uh, so, developed kind of the foundation for it, and we actually were on a team together in the entrepreneurship and business ownership class at. Um, at Johnston. So a number of the professors there were obviously very supportive um, and really great in that class. And that's where we met and we did a business plan. There were a couple folks on our team and we kind of went from that point and started to layer in some of the business approaches to how you develop the technology and how you position the technology and structure in a way to um, you know, create small value, then to finance it, then use that financing to create more value and build the structure for how you take it to market, continue to develop it, and have kind of a longer-term vision for, for what you want success to be. Um, so that technology really is the driver for us to create some pretty novel products and have an interesting application in the food space today and trying to scale that technology to uh, the opportunity to take advantage of really the impacts our technology could have around uh, reducing you know, thermal load in food processing by reducing reliance on cold chains, uh, by making food that may be healthier or more nutritious, depending on the product that we're doing. Um, so yes, it's a kind of a core kernel of the technology, but like any kind of good lasting company, it's also about creating a bigger ideal around people who want to come in and help make our food system more sustainable and building a culture that kind of prioritizes that. So for those that don't know, can you just give us the the quick and dirty version of, of what the technology, what does it actually do? Yeah, sure. So um, we, we use a waste, an atmospheric waste gas, uh, carbon dioxide. Um, we kind of marry it with traditional thermal food processes to bring down the required heat uh, using a combination of that, that a little bit of heat, CO2 and pressure um, in a novel combination to reduce the heat needed to achieve food safety and to process food. 
So at the end of the day, you may have a food that instead of being processed at 120 degrees Celsius for an hour might only need to be processed at 90 degrees Celsius for five minutes. And when you can reduce that thermal load, not only do you save energy in the food system, which is incredibly intensive, you can make products that are shelf stable so they don't need to be frozen, stored, or shipped. Uh, and you can unlock new product opportunities and categories. And, and probably what we're most well known for, that's kind of the flag is, you know, we're the French fry company and we're the shelf stable French fry company. So a French fry, you don't need to freeze or refrigerate at any point in the food chain, uh, unlocked by kind of this new toolkit of the ability to process at lower temperatures for less times, uh, causing less product damage. Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, you you maybe didn't come up with the technology, but there's there's a lot of the the other aspects that you bring. But I'm curious, did you go to business school with the idea of a career change, with the idea of starting a company? What was what was kind of in your mind when you decided that you wanted to get an MBA, at Johnson? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was definitely always one of those people that said, oh, you know, one day I'll start a company, one day I'll do it, um, and. Uh, maybe unintentionally, my career was a little bit, um, set, set me up well for that, you know, kind of starting a couple of years, really learning where the bar was, working at the family office, understanding uh, the legal side of things, a little bit on the tax side and, and how people think from an investment standpoint. And moving to Cornell, I, I did a lot of different investments, but I spent a lot of time with private equity and with venture capital in particular. So kind of starting early companies. Um, and then while I was there, you know, very fortunate, very grateful um, to have their support to pursue the MBA as well. Uh, understanding that, you know, kind of had this other experience, the one thing I hadn't actually done was entrepreneurship and, and sales and business development and, and, you know, taking an idea from, from idea to, to some level of execution. So uh, all of that kind of led to starting, starting the company. I didn't go into business school saying, um, I'm going to do this. It was, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to focus my studies on it. You know, I was in eLab, which for those who don't know is an on-campus accelerator. You get six credits and a little bit of money to, to kind of pursue your idea. I did entrepreneurship and business ownership. You know, I took, um, business, you know, business idea factory there with a number of courses to kind of allow myself to pursue, um, this idea full board and learn about the trade of entrepreneurship because it really is a trade and you have to practice it. So I got to spend 18 months really prior to, you know, doing that primarily, uh, which was just an incredible transformation for me, especially when layered in with my other perspectives from, from the investor side uh, to be able to position us to be successful as, as a company. Yeah, you mentioned a handful of different ways that Cornell kind of supported, uh, you know, as a, as a two-time Cornellian or maybe two and a half, given that you work there. Um, you know, it's great to hear that they're, that they're really supporting the, the businesses that, that Cornellians are trying to start. Now, tell us a little bit uh, about kind of there, there were different, as eLab, as you mentioned, there, there was other kind of pitch competitions. What kinds of ways does, does Cornell just in general uh, support entrepreneurs or, or people that have an idea and think they might want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. So, you know, Johnson specifically, uh, yeah, I kind of told you a little bit about the, the quote unquote entrepreneurship track, uh, where I did entrepreneurship and business ownership. You know, I did business idea factory, you know, there's a number of really great faculty there that support, uh, development of the entrepreneurial skill set, Uh, and then the, let's call it the playground, to go actually do entrepreneurship really is eLab. So if you demonstrate capability in thinking through and setting up entrepreneurial ventures, you get a chance to really go out there and do it. 
um, through the ELEB program supported by Entrepreneurship at Cornell, uh, as well as uh, Student Agencies Foundation as well, to be able to provide that, that let's call it a safe space, uh, but an area to experiment uh, and work on new ventures. And you know, I've served on recently uh, you know, advisory boards as an alum for ELEB companies and a mock board of directors and really give everybody the opportunity what it means and what it looks like to start a company. Uh, so those are a number, you know, a number of things. Uh, specifically for Farther Farms, we, we participated in the Cornell Venture Challenge, which is administered by uh, Big Red Ventures. So they kind of judge and have venture capitalists come and be the judges for a competition. You won some non-dilutive capital there. Uh, we won the Cornell Hotel, Hotel School Business Plan Competition, um, which was the first one we won and you know, had a great program there to, to go through and participate. Uh, so both those opportunities were learning experiences first and foremost, but also helped jumpstart uh, the company to a point where we could kind of scale up a little bit more, do a little bit more proof of concept to really validate the opportunity to kind of go to a bigger scale, you know, a couple months later. Yeah, that's perfect. No, as I'm listening, I'm, I'm thinking of all the things, gosh, I, I feel like I could have spent a decade at Cornell and still not been, been able to, whether it's through some of the entrepreneurship programs or getting involved in other clubs and activities and things, there's just not enough hours in the day. So was there was there anything that you would, would go back and, and do differently in either of your kind of treks through Cornell? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think um, my... My approach that's been my approach been consistent is take advantage of the best opportunity in front of you, and that means surround yourself with the best people you can. Um, you know, be ambitious, and then do you know, go after the best opportunity. Don't worry so much about what it is that you're doing. Um, if you surround yourself with good people, you'll kind of you'll kind of get to the next step. So that has kind of worked for me. I mean, if I could say, you know, at my age, I'd be CEO of a company that, with 13 people um, and part of a team, most importantly, that kind of shares a common mission and vision and, and play a role in helping set that um, with the collaboration of the team to help define it and continue to refine it. Um, I really couldn't be in a better place. So, you know, to go back and say I would change anything, I, I don't know that I really would. Um, I really don't know that I would. I would maybe every once in a while, I'd say maybe I'll go back for a day if I could go back in time just to enjoy it. And then you know, you do reunion for a couple of days and you say, all right, that's enough. I'm ready to go back to my, <laughs> to my lifestyle. I like my life. It's a good, it's, you know, just very, very lucky. Yeah. Well, well, you're lucky. You've got your, you've got your 10 year reunion coming up next year. Mine was canceled. My 10 year was canceled. Oh, so I'm going to be crashing yours next year. I was going to say, do they carry it over? Can you get to know <laughs> reunion now? So maybe uh, let's think about it this way then. Thinking about our our audience, uh, who are who are a lot of young alumni, maybe even some current undergrads. Uh, is there anything? Do do you know if if those programs that you mentioned are they available to undergrads and or recent alumni to kind of try to so try some of those pitch competitions, or is that specific to the MBA program? Yeah, no, definitely available to the undergrads. Uh, I had a lot of really great experiences working with the undergrads uh, through through business school, actually. And, and it was an interesting, um, you know, I was spending so much t of my MBA time uh, doing Farther Farms and pursuing Farther Farms. I was doing it in the context of having other kind of entrepreneurs side by side. And a lot of them were undergrads um, that I still talk to and am friendly with today from having shared that experience. So I think I was fortunate to learn from them and everything that they were focused on and the businesses they were building. Uh, they, I think 
I hope they 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 were able to learn a couple things from from myself and my my co-founder um, in what we were pursuing in my own experience. And I think that is the beauty of the program is that it's less about um, what degree you have and it's more about we're all doing the same thing. We're trying to start a business and we're going to learn. And if I can learn from ten people quickly in close quarters, I'm going to grow a lot faster than if I'm trying to do it by myself. And I think that was some of the thinking behind when it when Elab started as the pop shop in 2013, I think it was, um, and kind of evolved into a more structured thing with support systems and, and things like that. So is there anything then that you've learned along the way of this kind of entrepreneurial journey, but maybe just career journey as well that you'd advice that you'd give to young alumni or or current students who are starting a business? Uh, yes, I would say. The only, you know, within entrepreneurship, if it's easy, it's probably not worth doing. Uh, you feel like you learn the lesson repeatedly is that the right way is usually the hard way because people that are willing to do things the hard way are far and few between. Um, and if you can commit yourself to being willing to do things the hard way, uh, you can really, really, really develop a nice um, skill set at doing those things and an approach to those things, both mentally and, and you know, physically. Uh, but also, y you're going to feel a much greater sense of pride in your in your work when you do things the hard way or the right way, um, and and you kind of develop who you are as a person. Uh, the other piece, you know, aside from okay, tactically do things the hard way, is um, find make sure that you align with the why for what it is that you're trying to build. Um, you know, if, if, if one is too transactional or one is too opportunity focused, um, there's a lot of ups and downs, um, good days, bad days, medium days. The thing that is unifying is, you know, kind of going after something and even more so going after it with other people that you respect and that, that, you value, um, you know, their company and their insights and their collaboration because it's the people that will kind of pull you through those harder days, uh, not so much, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what I would, that's kind of how I would say it. No, it's perfect. It, almost like we planned it. You led me right into what I wanted to ask you next because I read on your website your, your why. Uh, we believe that through core innovation, we can unite people in the pursuit of maximizing global well-being. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what that actually looks like in practice at Farther Farms. And then where do you see Farther Farms going? Because as you mentioned, you know, right now you're the, the French fry company, but, but how do you see it, it expanding in the future? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is so interesting, has been so fascinating to me, is uh, about food. What I've learned in food and the industry and structure is particularly just such a crit the critical role that food processing as a segment place in, in feeding the world. Um, you know, we have limited and immovable arable land, which you can only squeeze so much yield out of to feed a growing population. So how do you actually make that the best use of that product that you're growing out of the ground or on a tree? You need to process it. You need to do two things. You need to extend the shelf life so it's, can, the calories can make it to, to nourish the population. But you also need to make sure that you're doing it in a way that ensures food safety so you're not going to harm. So kind of do no harm, and then, then it can taste good after that. Um, and really, we haven't, as I, I would say, 
as a, as a culture, as a people, we can do more. We can always do more and innovate better to make limited resources go further. And the way that we think we can contribute to that conversation is through the technology we're developing. So the limited resources we're making go further is the raw input of the product. And the heat energy and the, you know, the, the, the energy that we use in the processing, which is absolutely a critical function to feeding a growing world. So if in the processing we can use less inputs, we can take the limited inputs we have and extend the life. And if we can do that in a way that, that is appealing to the consumer tastes, then there's a lot of side effects, quote unquote, that'll have a positive impact on the world and, and general well-being. So, you know, if you don't need to have as many frozen trucks on the ground because consumers have an alternative that is as good or better or healthier some, on some thing than a frozen food, well, that's net good because it's less emissions, less energy use is going in for that entire supply chain. Um, there's all sorts of opportunities that get unlocked. Now, we have a long road to get there. I mean, that's a very big ideal. But if you look at places, uh, if you take a different view on it and you say, okay, we're not going to talk about reducing energy uses, but we're going to talk about how do we feed people who are difficult to access. Well, right now, they either have to eat fresh food, think about developing worlds, they either have to eat fresh food before it goes bad, or they have access to shelf-stable foods because they don't have a cold chain. Um, so it goes back to kind of the core idea of my, my co-founder who grew up in India that has very either non-existent or unreliable cold chains. Uh, which means the only opportunity for them is really relatively low quality shelf stable foods. So if we have a new method to make higher quality shelf stable foods at a reasonable cost, you may be able to let them skip the entire frozen infrastructure development altogether in favor of doing something like this, which net net is, is really positive for the food system. Um, but our focus is really on creating a new opportunity for consumers, for, for restaurants, for uh, distributors for logistics providers, which is based on the core technology, um, and the the effects will come kind of later. And I think you and I talked about this before the call, Andrew. But the idea that we need to get the bottom line to work, the business needs to make sense. And if the business makes sense, what will be true is all these other things around sustainability and energy use and 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 health and and other aspects that that consumers value. Yeah, that's perfect. And and one of the things that I wanted to I wanted to mention too is as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, obviously we're we're in a, a global pandemic right now. I remember when when a lot of this was first happening and things were shutting down and supply chains were being shut down. I was seeing at the same time that millions of gallons of milk were being, you know, dumped. And at the same time, there's there's food banks that that are, you know, obviously hurting for 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 resources to to be able to to share. And and so how has COVID affected your business? I'd just be really curious to hear what's been going on the last couple months. Yeah, sure. So um, right now we're, we're really in the, the testing phase and, and getting our facility kind of operational. So we've thought a lot about how our business could help for sure when we get up and running, um, but we haven't necessarily been able to, to execute on some of those potential impacts as we look to roll out our, our launch of our product. Uh, but when you think longer term, I mean, what something like our technology would unlock is, yeah, you could certainly process things that would typically go into the frozen cold chain, but because it's too expensive to store them frozen if there's not sufficient demand at the end consumer, well, now we could just continue to process and store. 
so you don't have to waste. And this is actually happening in potatoes where you have a lot of growers that are throwing the potatoes away or giving them away to, to, to people in the local town. Whereas you know, with our technology, we could theoretically process it, store it, and sell it later. Uh, you know, buy the potatoes at a reasonable price so they don't go to waste, create a product that can sit on our shelf and we don't have to incur the, the overhead of a growing inventory base relative to a frozen storage facility. Yeah, I love that. No, it's it's great when you have a purpose-driven company and then the, the growth of the company is the growth of the, the purpose and, and the impact that you have. And just to kind of tie a bow on it, you were talking about doing it the hard way. And oftentimes in conscious capitalism, we talk about, you know, sometimes it's easy to make trade-offs. You know, you make a trade-off for your purpose to, you know, make a little bit more profit or, or whatever the case may be. But what you're really talking about, how do we, how do we get the, the win-win-wins for everybody. You know, this, this is a win for, you know, maybe some people in developing countries. There's a lot of food deserts, right? And in, in, in Rochester here, we're, we're a, a big, uh, ha- have that as a big problem. So how do we how do we do that in a way that we're also able to, to then make money uh, as well? And and that's that's doing it the hard way. And so thank you, Michael, for, for doing it the hard way uh, and for joining us here today to, to share that story with, with other Cornellians. Yeah, you're very welcome. And thanks again, Andrew, for having me on. I think, uh, you know, what, what you're doing with conscious capitalism is is really great. I think it's an important discussion to, to have in business. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's, there's definitely a place for it at the table. And, and uh, you know, really excited about what you're doing. And, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. Music for Fresh from the Hill was created by Kia Albertson-Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. To learn more about the Young Alumni programs and how to stay connected to Cornell, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni. 